Father doesn't need our help in bringing about what he said he's going to do unless he says, I will do this if you do that. But if he don't say, this is what I want you to do, then we need to keep our hands off of trying to figure out and bring to pass what he said he's going to do. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. Assessing her inability to have children, Sariah came up with the idea of having her husband sleep with their servant Hagar in order to produce children. Abram went in unto Hagar, she conceived, and when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she despised Sarah. Although Abram did not give Sarah permission to mistreat Hagar, He did give Sarai permission to do with Hagar as she pleased, and that permission led to harsh treatment toward Hagar. Abram was 86 when Ishmael, the son by Hagar, was born. The name Ishmael was not chosen by Hagar, but by the angel of Jehovah and given to Hagar to name the child. Today's study title is Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. So, let's study. The message title tonight is Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. And as we've been following Abram, we know that Father brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees, uh, spent some time in Haran. He gathered some souls. He finally came into the land of Canaan. And while in Canaan, there was a famine that hit the land, and they went to Egypt, and there Abram prospered. Father brought them out of Egypt, and Abram was very rich in gold and silver and animals and servants. And then we know that Lot got captured by some kings, and Abram went to battle and fought and delivered Lot. And there he met Melchizedek in the place or the the wilderness of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they had fellowship. And then the idea of tithing was introduced, and Abram, the Bible says, gave Malik Sadiq or Melchizedek a tithe of all. We looked at some of the all that Abram tithed on and the possibilities that were there. And we know that these kings had accumulated goods as they come from uh, Babylon all the way down to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and back up. And Abram, as we know, the Bible says, uh, caught up with them as they were somewhere going toward Damascus. And so there was a lot that was accumulated by these kings and a lot of spoil that Abram was able to bring back with him. And of course, we know that the king of Sodom came and told Abram that, you know, he can keep all the goods, but just give him the people. And Abram made the declaration. We suspect that he made this declaration while he was with Melchizedek, because Melchizedek identified Jehovah as Most High, which is first time we saw that description of him, and Abram began to use that term even in reference to Sodom. And so now, as we 
make the transition from that to chapter number 16, we find that Abram had gone through a process where father, after he delivers Lot, after he gives the tithes to Melchizedek, that there is a covenant relationship that he established. He tells him to get certain animals. He cut those animals. He drive out the birds of prey that came down upon that, on the animals. And father promised him that he was going to give all this land, all this land. And he even goes as far as to say from the great river in Egypt, from the Euphrates to the great river in Egypt. And we showed a few maps from that. Now, tonight, I'm going to show a couple of those maps for the purpose of what is contained in this passage as we go through. And because we're going to go through the whole chapter, let's just do verse by verse. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid. And that Hebrew word there for handmaid is slave girl, a handmaid and maid same Hebrew word there, it's she had a slave girl, an Egyptian. And so here we find that um, Moses makes us to know that this slave girl was from Egypt. She was an Egyptian and her name was Hagar. Now we know that while in Egypt, Abram was blessed by Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the Bible says, entreated Abram with many gifts because of Sarai. And some of the gifts Pharaoh gave Abram were men servants and maid servants. And in chapter 12, we see in verse 16, and he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And so the Pharaoh gave Abram because of Sarah all types of goods, including human goods, that he made the servant. And I suspect that while Sarah was in the palace of Pharaoh, that there were handmaids assigned to her. And I suspect that Hagar was one of those individuals that were assigned to Sarah so that when Sarah returned to Abram, all that Sarah had accumulated was came with her. And the Bible doesn't tell us where she picks up Hagar or where she gets them. We don't hear about her when they leave Haran. And we just now hear about her, but specifically that she was an Egyptian. So I would say that it is safe to conclude that they picked up Hagar in Egypt. Hagar may have been given to Abram or Sarah while in Egypt, and as their possession left Egypt with them. So all that they accumulated, all that they possessed, all that they were given, left Egypt when they left. And so as Sarah now has um, either been told, and I suspect that Abram, after his encounters with the Almighty, would tell Sarah certain things, and she come to conclude that Abram is going to have some children. So now she assess her own situation. And in the assessment of her own situation, she came up with this idea of having her husband 
sleep with Hagar in order to produce Sarah a child. And this next verse is going to show us that Sarai's intent was that if Hagar is her slave, if Hagar is her handmaid, if Hagar is her possession, then Hagar's children would be her children. The verse implies that the children Hagar produced would be Sarai's children since Hagar was Sarai's maid, servant, or slave. And this is how the verse reads. And Sarah said unto Abram, Behold now, Jehovah hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. You see the rationale here to where she's saying now that sleep with my handmaid and give me some children. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Now I can see how this could be rationale because up until this point, Abram is promised children. But Father doesn't specifically say how these children are going to come. He speaks that later when he makes covenant with Sarah. And so for her, though, and here's the thing, this is what I've found to be somewhat troubling but easy to do, that we get a word from the Almighty, and we may not get a when, where, and how, and the tendency is to try to help a prophetic word come to pass. Notice how she says it. She says, He's kept me from having children, but he's promised us children. Now, she don't say that, but that's what it implies. So, it may be, in other words, maybe it will happen this way, or it could happen this way, or maybe, and I hear these things, I hear these things in people's conversation when they're not sure how Father's going to do something, but they're sure he has said he's going to do something. And if we don't know how Father's going to do something, and he has said he's going to do something, it's best to inquire of him as to how he's going to do it than to try to figure out how he's going to do it on our own without inquiring of him. Because that's how we get in trouble. Well, maybe he's going to do, well, maybe he's going to heal me this way. You see, we know that healing is the children's bread. And, and I, I have found that people sometimes out of either impatience, and that's really the big issue, impatience, waiting on Father to do what he said he was going to do without him giving any clear-cut instructions on how he's going to do it, and so then we can wait on that. If I knew when, where, and how, then I can at least drum up the patience to wait. But if I don't know when, where, and how, all I got is he said he's going to do it, so maybe he's going to do it this way. Let me see that. Let me try this. Let me try this. Let me try this. And we have to be very careful. I'm going to step out on a limb. Sometimes people convince themselves that especially when it comes to healing, is one of those mystifying 
types of things that none of us can really explain. We know that we've had people pray for us. We've had people lay hands on us. We've, we've asked all kinds of folks, you know, some of us to, for prayer, and, and it hasn't manifest yet. And then there's breakthrough technology. And people rationalize. I know it's easy to rationalize. Well, maybe Father's going to use that situation, that particular technology to heal me because after all, all knowledge comes from God and maybe he's given them the knowledge to bring about what I need and therefore attribute him bringing healing through the physicians or through science. Now, if Father specifically said that's what he's going to do, then there's no problem with that. But if one is speculating that maybe that's how he's going to do it, there's no different than what we got here. And what we got here in Sarah's situation is that she now wants to bring to pass what Father said he's going to do through Abram, which creates a problem. Father doesn't need our help in bringing about what he said he's going to do unless he says, I will do this if you do that. But if he don't say, this is what I want you to do, then we need to keep our hands off of trying to figure out and bring to pass what he said he's going to do. And notice here, the Bible says, and Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Now, we went back, remember we noted that before Abram went to Egypt, the Bible tells us that he and Sarah had came up with a plan that no matter where they go, once they left Ur, he was to say that she was his sister. And so there's a possibility because what Abram was looking at doing was trying to preserve his life. His thoughts were, that if they find out you my wife, they're going to try to kill me to get you. And so what Sarah now is given, she's given the task of misrepresenting the relationship for the purpose of saving Abram's life. So in the sense, Abram feels, I would say, indebted to Sarah. So when she comes to him with this idea, he hearkens to her. He does what she say because she's done what he's asked her to do. This idea of Sarah was 10 years after they had left Egypt and dwelt in the land of Canaan. So here it is, Father has spoken to them, and now here they are, they're in the wilderness, and no child. Sarah comes up with this idea. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, her slave girl, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Now, what Sarah did, and this word here, this wife, is compatible to wife, that she presented Abram with her slave girl, to be his wife for the purpose of bringing forth a child. So she was like a surrogate wife. Not that she was to replace Sarah, but for the purpose of producing children. And so he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived, 
And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. In other words, I've got a baby by your husband. You couldn't have children. And in one sense, what the word implies is that she looked with contempt. She looked with dishonor. You got to get this, brothers and sisters, that here it is. Hagar is under Sarah, under Sarai. She is Sarai's property. Because this next verse that we're going to get to suggests to me that, well, let me get to it. Sarai acknowledged her wrong, but put blame on Abram for Hagar's attitude toward her as if something more developed between Hagar and Abram that gave Hagar, a slave girl, some right to have such an attitude toward her mistress. In other words, something more from Sarai's perspective occurred in that tent other than them just getting busy and producing a child. Now, verse 5 says, And Sarah said unto Abram, Now notice the tone. My wrong be on me. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. How did that happen? What happened in that tent? Because notice the next phrase. The Lord judged between me and thee. She's saying, listen, something transpired because she was my slave, respected me before she went in that tent. And now there's a change after she has come out of that tent and found to be with child. So she says, Jehovah judge between me and you. In other words, my wrong be upon me. Notice this. I want to say it again. My wrong be upon me. I know what I did, and I take full responsibility for my wrong. And now that she has conceived, I am despised in her eyes. What happens? Jehovah judge between me and... See, this phrase doesn't fit. You follow me? It doesn't fit within the narrative because Sarah has an issue and the issue goes beyond her slave girl, her handmaiden, to where she's asking for judgment between her and Abram. And the opening phrase is, I accepted the wrong for what I did. Are you willing to accept whatever wrong? And it doesn't say that Oh, my wrong be upon thee. Yeah. Again, even more so. What I did was wrong, but it's on you now. (laughs) It's like something more happened here. Wow. That even makes it a little bit so good. Like, I'm not accepting my wrong. It's on you, bruh. But Abram responds. He reminds Sarah and assured her, that the maid was hers before she brought her to him and was hers after the fact to do with as she pleased. And Abram said unto Sarai, Thank you, Miss Sharon. Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. 
to do her as it please thee. Now, if one wants to take the position that Abram married Hagar or she became his wife, the position that Abram has is now she's your slave. I did what you asked, she's yours. So he's not taking the responsibility as a husband or looking at her as a second wife. He's looking at her as a slave. She was a slave before she came in the tent. She's a slave after she left the tent. And not only is she not my slave, she's yours. So whatever you want to deal with her, you deal with her. And so he says, to do to her as it pleased thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. Now, she fled from her face, but she actually ran away. This is what happens. And so this shows us a side of her, of Sarah, that lets us know, one, she didn't take mess off her servants, but also that she needed Abram's permission first to mistreat her servant. And Abram is like, if she's my servant and she's despising me or looking at me with contempt, what would withhold my hand from punishing her? Hmm? Nothing but Abram. And so when I look at this and I think about Sarah and I think about Abram, she now deals with her servant hardly. And although Abram did not give her permission to mistreat Hagar, he did give Sarai permission to do with Hagar as she pleased, and that permission led to harsh treatment toward Hagar. Hagar's attitude toward Sarai brought upon her the treatment she was getting. She showed contempt or dishonor, and that's what that word means, toward her mistress. She despised her, and Hagar could dish it out but was unable to take it because when Sarai began to respond to her being looked upon and being despised by her servant, she rendered hard treatment to the one that she initially showed favor to to present her as a surrogate wife or surrogate to produce children for her. And so she reaped what she had sown and therefore ran away with Abram's child in her womb. And the angel of Jehovah found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness. And this fountain is in the way of Shur. What you're going to see here, brothers and sisters, is how, you know how today we can read in the first century, we can read where they were first called Christians in Antioch. And with our knowledge, of where the idea of Christian came from, we know the term Christian was not a first century term. It didn't come for years later. But yet, in the Bible, the translators, the interpreters, say they were called Christian in the first century. Now, logic tells us that's not true. 
But what you have is what they're being called now superimposed into what they were called in the first century, which is not accurate. And we're going to see this, you know, here that, and the angel of Jehovah found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. The angel of Jehovah addressed Hagar as Sarai's slave or Sarai's maid, reminding her that she was not her own, but belonged to Sarai. He asked her where she was coming from and where she was going, and this is in verse 8. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid. (laughs) Now, Hagar would have been enough, but the implication is remember who you belong to. And then he says something that he obviously know. Whence camest thou? Now, identified her as Sarai's maid, right? So it's only logic, logical that we know where you come from, but where are you going? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of Jehovah said unto her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hands. And the angel of Jehovah said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Now, this is some interesting stuff because this is like a covenant. I'm going to multiply your seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Now, when Jehovah made covenant with Abram, he said in verse 17, chapter 15, and it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace had a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And in the same day, Jehovah made a covenant with Abram, saying, unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. As part of the covenant, Ishmael, Abram's firstborn, was included in this because he said he's going to, unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And who was Abram's seed? So now we're looking at Abram's seed, Ishmael, Abram's seed, Isaac, Abram's seed from Keturah, These are all the seed of Abram. Abraham had six sons by Keturah, Ishmael by Hagar, and then he ultimately, he has Isaac by Sarai. These are all Abram's seed. So when Father is speaking this, he's not speaking about Israel. He's speaking about Abram's seed. And if you notice in this map, the river Euphrates to the great river Egypt, the Nile River, That is a large swath of land. Now, Israel is only occupying this piece that is in the midst of all of this land. And the rest of this land seems to be occupied by Abram's other seed. So this land seems to be majority of the descendants of Abram through Ishmael, and through Keturah. 
Certainly the land that we know that it was given to Israel is the land of Israel. But Father promised Abram land and seed that could not be numbered. If a person could number the stars in heaven, they would be able to number the seed of Abram. But you and I both know, and this is a lot of land, folks. The name Ishmael was not chosen by Hagar, but by the angel of Jehovah and given to Hagar to name the child. Ishmael was the firstborn of Abram, but not the son of the covenant. In verse 11, notice, And the angel of Jehovah said unto her, Behold, you are with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael. So who gave Ishmael his name? Father did. Or the angel of Jehovah, which speak on behalf of Father, because Jehovah has heard thy affliction. Now, it says, you shall bear, bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael, because Jehovah has heard. And that's what Ishmael means, Jehovah has heard, or Elohim shall hear. The angel of Jehovah reveals to Hagar what kind of person her son will be and that he would dwell in the presence of his brethren. And if, in fact, Muslims are the descendants of Ishmael, uh, Muslims claim their identity to Ishmael. Not all Ishmaelites are Muslims, probably. I mean, we can't say. But we know that in the midst of Israel, the biggest challenges they have is with Islam. That's the biggest challenge with the surrounding countries around them. I don't believe that the hatred is toward Israelites. I believe the hatred is toward an ideology. Just as you have people who have an issue with democracy, there are people who have an issue with democracy. There are people who have issue with socialism. There are people who have issue with communism. Communism, democracy, socialism, those are ideologies. This is a, a system by which government is built on. Zionism is an ideology. It is a system by which country, culture, people govern themselves. And this is how I come to the conclusion that many of the people who have an issue with Israel don't have issues as much with Jews because you have Jewish people living in the country of people who hate Israel. You have Jewish people that are residents that in some cases are part of the institutions, a part of the government. You look at pretty much any of these surrounding countries and you will find Israelites, you'll find Jewish people dwelling in these locations. And so if people had issues with Jews, what would they do? They would chase them out. They will run them out. And some people use the idea, well, that's what the Holocaust was all about. And there's a whole lot more, I think, to it. 
Then, you know, Hitler waking up one day and saying he want all the Jewish people out of Germany. There's so much more, but when you have the propaganda machines telling us what they want us to hear and our inability to be able to search matters out for ourselves, then we're left at the mercy of the propaganda. We're left at the mercy of the news cycles. We're left at the mercy of people telling us what's going on only to find out later that some of the stuff they told us wasn't true. We're left at the mercy of the historians, the history books. And you certainly know about the history of this nation, how things that have been written and propagated in history books and told for years and years in public schools and private schools and only to come to find out that in homeschool curriculums where people have more of the true information than what is taught in the homeschool environments where people have access and they're not at the mercy of somebody selecting the curriculums to be taught in a public setting and where people search out information, you'll find that many of us have been taught things that simply aren't true. And then we find that stereotypes are built from this mass of information to where people believe a certain group or a certain people, all of the people of that group think a certain way. All of the people of that group are a certain way. And then you get prejudices and discriminations and then hate crimes. And it's all behind, you know, an ideology, which if you really look behind the scenes, you see politics. The whole political agenda, which now, again, when people in the country that we live in, people swear to uphold their constitutions, what are people taking the oath of offices in other countries? What are they swearing to uphold? You see. And so as long as a people can be confound in a particular ideology, and not permitted to think outside the box or be viewed as a traitor or undemocratic or unpatriotic for not thinking a certain way. And that's okay for a worldly person. For a person of this world, for a person whose kingdom is relegated to the earth ram who doesn't identify their kingdom's identity, when a person becomes a citizen of the kingdom, they can't think only within the ideology of a nation. These are tough words. And it drills down even deeper because from a kingdom perspective, if you were to move this into as an American family, you're supposed to think like an American. That's how you're supposed to think. And if you don't think like an American, then should you be in America? You see? The religion of America is patriotism. And so if you're patriotic, <laughs> whoo, I know I'm getting in some deep doo-doo now. 
I'm out there. Because, you know, these things, I'm trying to think through and figure out stuff as to how we've been warped to the degree to where we find it okay to defy what is written to where we can comfortably serve two masters. We serve the master of our nation and the master of our kingdom. And to not be allegiant or to not be faithful to either one is to be a traitor. God and country. That's an American ideology. And so Messiah, when he comes, he, he dwells this thing down a little deeper and he says, listen, because this is bigger than what we're talking about here. Because if in fact our alliance and allegiance is singular, just as an American would see someone who doesn't uphold the American value as a traitor, family sees family value. And the question becomes, from a kingdom perspective, is that when you become a citizen of the kingdom and you have people that are in your biological line that is not citizens of that kingdom, where are your alliances? Because, see, the moment our alliances are able to be splintered and we can begin to maintain alliances in different perspectives, that alliance in different perspectives begins to broaden itself to where it's not just country, it's not just family, but it moves into fraternal, fraternal orders. People begin to pledge, make pledges to different organizations and groups. And it is amazing to think that a person whose ideology is wicked, corrupt, and violent toward a people can claim to do it in the name of Jesus. It's warped in his thinking because people are not embracing kingdom ideology, but a mixture of ideologies. And it gets confused. And so when Father gives Abram this promise, Abram has to understand that this thing is broader. At least Abram doesn't have a, a warped way of thinking because from Abram's perspective, all of the people that he's acquired, the souls that he's acquired, he see them as family. Abram don't have a, a mindset of Israel. Israel don't exist. He's already stated that his own servant, the one that he has brought up in his house, is going to be his heir because he doesn't have a child from his loins. So he's not caught up in the way that many of us are caught up because Abram trained and taught everybody in his household the instructions that the Almighty gave. But Abram has one weakness, and that weakness's name is Sarai. Because now he gives her permission, saying, listen, deal with her as you choose. And she seemingly deal with her servant in a way 
that doesn't seem to be compatible with Abram and how he deals with people. And so now he has Ishmael. When he has Ishmael, we're going to find out later that even though Ishmael doesn't come from Sarai's body, Abram sees Ishmael as his flesh and blood. And that's the mindset he's going to take with all of his children, but that seems to be the mindset he takes with his servants as well. And so he doesn't give Sarah the permission to mistreat Hagar, but Sarah deals with her hard. And as we've pointed out, when the angel of Jehovah meets with Hagar, he gives her the name. The name Ishmael was chosen by the angel of Jehovah. And so the angel of Jehovah reveals to Hagar what kind of person her son will be and that he would dwell in the presence of his brethren. And that's one of the reasons why I showed you the map. We went back and showed you the map that Ishmael is all around. <laughs> Ishmael is not only all around Israel, but if in fact Muslims are the descendants of Ishmael, you have the Muslim quarter in Israel. You have the idea of a two-state solution right there among the government. And so Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac, <laughs> and then all of uh, Keturah's children, they're up in there, y'all. After Hagar's encounter with the angel of Jehovah, she gives a name to Jehovah, and it's Berlacharoi. Berlacharoi. The reason why I brought up the they were called Christians in Antioch is because of what we see in this particular verse. I was just using that as an illustration to show how what we're reading and what actually happened, something came later. Notice what it says, and I have it underlined. And she called the name of Jehovah that spoke unto her. Thou God seest me. For she said, I have also here looked after him that seeth me. So who did she call this Bella Haroha? Bella Haroi? She calls the name of Jehovah there, Laharoi. God sees me. Hagar called the name of Jehovah there, Laharoi. However, later, the well was called there, Laharoi. And the question is, by whom? Because she didn't name a well. She didn't attribute the name there, Laharoi. To the well, she attributed the name Berlacharoi to Jehovah. In verse 14, wherefore the well was called Berlacharoi, behold, it is between Kadesh and Barat. So now somebody goes and says, There's the well. That well there is associated with Hagar. Hagar named this well. No, Hagar didn't call the well that. She called the name Jehovah that. And so the well of him that liveth and seeth me, that's what Belacharoi means. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name 
which Hagar bare Ishmael. Now, here's what's interesting, that Abram didn't give the boy a name. Sarah didn't give the boy a name. And the only one who heard the name was Hagar. So Hagar, because who had the authority to name him? Abram. Abram had the authority to name. And this goes to show, I would suspect, and that's all I can do is suspect, that Abram's fear of Jehovah is like when Hagar came back, the conversation, I ran away. And when I ran away, I met this angel who claimed to be the Lord. And he spoke to me. And the only reason why I am back is because he spoke to me and told me to come back, and he told me to submit myself to you, and he also told me what the child name would be. And so Abram's child is named, it appears that he's named by a slave, but in fact, the slave girl didn't give him the name. The Almighty gave him the name. And it goes to show even that Hagar, the slave girl, has an encounter. It's like whomever Abram comes in contact with, some reason or another, they have an encounter, you see. From the time he's spoken to in Ur to leave his father's house, to the time he comes in, he makes confederates with the individuals in the land. He goes and Lot splits the land, Lot goes off and Folks come in and Abram goes into battle with a handful of people against this massive army and Melchizedek shows up. You see, it's like Abram's relationship with the Almighty seems to spill over on people who have relationship with him. At least that's the way it seems. To where now this Egyptian slave girl who's running away, but she's got Abram's baby. And it's like father is watching over everything that belongs to Abram. Even to the point to where he stops this woman in her track and tell her to go back and submit herself to her mistress. And so father names this child. And we're going to find out that as we go through that even when when Abram sends Hagar away and sends Ishmael away they still are in community we'll see that in a few more chapters out and then this passage closed Abram was 86 when Ishmael was born verse 16 and Abram was four score and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram and with that we're going to bring this time, this session to a close. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. 
Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.